Good morning. I laughed because this morning when Carter woke up, um, Angela said, well, we go home today. Or he, he wants to stay 10 more days, he said. <laughs> but when she said we go home today, he said, I hate that, which I thought was so funny. Funny, he wants to, wants to stay. So we're leaving him here, Dave, Wayne, enjoy <laughs> <laughs> your next 10 days. Um, we've been looking at, at the parables, these um, stories of a new world and challenging our assumptions. And, and as, as we read these parables, I think, I'm hoping, or what I find for me, let me just say what I find for me, what I hope for you, is as they start to sink in, the, the trouble doesn't become understanding them. The trouble becomes actually applying them and living them out. And uh, I mean, the wheat and the weeds cause us to trust God to settle the issues when he wants to settle them and to focus on bearing fruit. And, and the workers in the vineyard reminds us to love the generosity of God and to follow his example of grace. Now, what, now don't get me wrong. What I, I really believe in studying the Bible. I believe in scholarship. I, and I think actually you, what we do when we come to these stories is we study to know and understand the story in a deeper way. But very often Christianity becomes about knowing things. And it separates us from actually engaging the story. And um, Soren Kierkegaard, who you may have heard of, he's a, a, a philosopher, theologian. I love this quote by him. He says, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. And we pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly and you will say if I do that my whole life will be ruined how would I ever get on in the world and then he says herein lies the place of Christian scholarship Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close oh priceless scholarship what will we do without you Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. I love that quote because that's what we do sometimes. We, we make it the way of, a way of thinking. And that's why I'm so sold on stories of Scripture. I'm, I'm not saying don't think, but I'm saying the stories add that hard aspect to it where we engage with the people that are walking with Jesus, that are listening to what he's saying. And so uh, the, the, we're, today we're going to be in Luke 18. And... During the context of this, there's a long period of Jesus' teaching that leads up to this. It's just before his entry into Jerusalem. And what we're going to read today follows that parable of the persistent widow who kept going and kept going. Jesus is using it to teach about prayer. And eventually, the, the, the judge she went to listened because of her persistence. Then he tells the story we're going to look at today. And then the disciples try to get rid of the little kids, the little children, and Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Now, it's interesting to me that he puts this between persistence in prayer and welcoming children. That's where this story falls. So we're going to read Luke 8, 18, verses 9 to 14. It's short. I'm sure you've heard it before, but here we go. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. 
and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, my point in this parable is how you come shapes how you go. How you come to God shapes how you go out into the world. And, and we're going to work our way through the story again, looking at, at a series of twos. Uh, first of all, there's, there's, there's two men. And you see them, they're doing the exact same activity, but they're different people. They've both come to the temple to pray. They've both come to commune with God. They have something to say, but that's really all they have in common. What, what we have really are these two men on opposite ends of the spectrum. You've got the Pharisee, the, the religious elite. The Hebrew word for Pharisee literally means separatist. These, not from Quebec, that's not what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> these people were so... They focused so much on their personal holiness and obedience to the law. Their belief was if they kept the law faithfully that the Messiah would come, right? And, and they kept the laws and, and just not even the laws. They would add more and more and more and more laws. Purification laws that the Old Testament gave to priests, they said it applies to the entire nation. And they tried to keep all those laws. Then there was this oral Torah that was this passed down teaching from Pharisee to Pharisee to Pharisee. They tried to keep all those laws. This was a man who was really good at doing the right things. Now, I, I find in my life there are two types of people. There are people that are good at doing the right things, and there are people who are just not good at doing the right things. And I, it's hilarious to me to watch uh, because some people just find it easy to toe the line and conform and do what they're supposed to do, and some people just can't. <laughs> they just... It just drives them crazy. Well, the Pharisees were the guys that could. They could, could do all the right things. And then there's this guy on the other end, the tax collector. And you've probably heard about the tax collectors. They worked for Rome. They were Jews, but they were contracted out to Rome. And they were to collect the taxes from their own countrymen and give Rome what they wanted. And anything they could get over and above, they kept for themselves. Now, these were, really, this was the pastor and the drug dealer coming to church to pray, is what it was, in, in our context. And they've, they've come to pray from all, inspect, from all perspectives. They're on very different ends. And that, that flows from this human tendency to categorize. Now, to some degree, we all do this and we can't stop doing this. But we tend to see people and we tend to put them in a box. We have categorizations for people. Lots of times we jump too soon. How many of you have thought somebody was one way and once you got to know them, you realize you were totally wrong? I think part of this is normal just coping because when we come, you come to family camp, you meet a whole group of people. It's hard to process what is it. It's hard to get to know everybody individually. So you kind of lump people into categories. But there's a human tendency to do that. And what I want you to get in this story is not so much um, the categories of these two men, but to realize that everybody listening to the story, this is not a true happening. This is not something that, that they're watching happen. This is a story that Jesus is telling. And everybody that's listening picks up on those two categories, the Pharisee and the tax collector, really quickly. They see them coming to pray, right? And they think they have it all figured out. The Pharisee is the righteous one. That makes sense to them. He's keeping all the laws. I mean, when we hear his prayer, we kind of laugh and we mock because he's so arrogant. But for them, they'd be like, yeah, that's the guy. 
And the tax collector would beat his breast and say, have mercy on me. He couldn't even look up. And they'd say, yeah, that's what he should be doing. Right? And so the, the characterizations of these two men, the, the crowd resonated with that. And then you hear these two prayers. Right? Just look at the text. The Pharisee prays in verse 11 and 12. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. And the tax collector, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Their words, their actions, and the posture betrays the condition of their heart. Now, one of the benefits of prayer is very often it gives us insight into who we are. But, but the thing is, about our prayers, who are we praying to? Did you notice that word in here? It says, the Pharisee prayed, what came after that in the text? Did you hear it? About himself. The Greek word there could be translated about or to. The Pharisee prayed about himself or the Pharisee prayed to himself. Do you get that? How many, he, he's not praying to God at all. He's, he's listing in front of God how good a person he is. He's, he's saying things out loud. You know, we often, uh, maybe you don't, parents do with their children. We pray to get our point across. My, my favorite type of prayer like this is what I call the sermon synthesis prayer at the end of the sermon that pastors do, right? And dear God, we thank you that today you have taught us in point one that this was true and that this was two. And we've taught us as a church that we should do this and we should do that, right? Have you ever heard pastors do that? Yeah, we're, we're horrible at that because we, we, we think you slept through the whole thing. But when we said pray at the end, you woke up because like, it's almost over. So we got one last chance to get it in there. So we do the sermon synthesis prayer, right? Slightly related to that is the, the church gossip prayer. Oh, God bless Susie. You know what she's going through. And everybody's like, what's Susie going to do? <laughs> you know? <laughs> what's going on there? I've got to talk. And afterwards, they're like, how can I pray for Susie better? Right? They want to know. <laughs> but we often talk to, about, we talk about ourselves in front of God without actually talking to God. And that's what we see the Pharisee doing, right? And, and the question is, what, when you pray, what do you actually say? He says, I'm not like the others, especially him. I fast two times a week. Now, uh, according to the Jewish law, they only had to fast one day a year. So this guy's 103 good fasts up, right? I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. And basically he says, God, thanks me. Thank you for making me such a great person. I, I heard a story uh, years ago about a little kid who's in his backyard. And I, I, was, I wasn't an only child, but my closest brother was seven years older. So I spent a lot of time at home by myself after my siblings went away. And I'd get in the backyard with my baseball and my bat, and I'd throw it up, and I'd swing, and then you got to chase it. So when I was lazy. I said, Dad, I need some more baseballs. <laughs> I need three or four. So if I'm going to run for them, i got to. Anyway, there's a story told about this kid who throws the ball up, and as he throws it up, he says, I am the greatest hitter in the world, and he swings, and the ball falls to the ground. So he picks it up again. I am the greatest hitter in the whole world, and he swings, and the ball falls to the ground. He does it a third time. I'm the greatest hitter in the whole world, and he swings Boom, misses the ball, it falls to the ground, and then he goes, I am the greatest pitcher in the whole world. <laughs> and I think sometimes our prayers are, are like that, right? We are very capable at, at, at convincing ourselves of a situation about ourselves that may not even be true. We, we do that. Now, the tax collector stands far away. He can't even look up to God. He beats his chest, which in that culture was a sign of grief. 
And he, he prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's two very different prayers from two very different people. Now, the point comes in, in, in understanding the two responses. Because your words expose your heart. Now, come again to the listeners. Realize they think the prayers make perfect sense. If, if you really put yourself in their shoes, they know where the story is going. Right? They, they know that the Pharisee is the holy righteous one. They know that the tax collector is the sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this tax collector went home justified. And that's where the story gets yanked out from under them because they're like, what? What? And Jesus is helping them understand that, that their words expose their heart. In Luke 6, it says, um, each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Sometimes it's really profitable for us just to listen to what comes out of our mouth. Like yesterday when I was saying, when you're talking about they or them or those people, that gives you a little sign of what's going on inside. And, and we know that about others. We know other people say horrible, horrible things, right? We have this little system, right? Others, they have prejudices, but we have convictions, right? Others are, are conceited, but with me, you know, when, when, I, when I take time to look at, do my best and, and stand out, it's because I have self-respect, right? <laughs> when others spend personal time on their appearance, right, they stand in front of a mirror, it's vanity, but with me, it's just stewardship of this, baby. I've got the moneymaker right here. I'm taking care of this, right? I've got it. It's stewardship. With you, it's touchiness. With me, it's sensitivity. And in you, it's worry. And in me, it's a concern. That's one of the things that happens when words come out of our mouth. We can shift it. We can, if we're not careful, we can say things that make us believe things about ourselves that aren't really true. And, and, Jesus then brings these stories in here to totally undercut us. To show that, that our words actually show what's coming out of our heart. And then he uses that word. He says, this man went home justified. It, that word is only used twice in the New Testament. Only two times. The other time is used in Hebrews 2, 17. For this reason, he, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement, that he might justify for the sins of the people. That's the only other time that same word. There's other words for mercy, but, but, and, 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 and there's other words for justify, but that, that's the only two times that, that word is used. And Jesus is pointing something here. He's saying, you know what? the justification that that guy gets is not because he's good enough. It's because of what I'm going to do. He's not justified because he's kept all the laws. He's justified because he honestly lays who he is out before God and lets God do the work. What we really need spiritually to be declared righteous is not something we are capable of doing for ourselves. See, the man, the man who, who thought he was righteous really wasn't because he was basing his righteousness on his own actions. I fast twice a week, give a tenth, I do all these things. I'm not like those guys. And, and the tax collector was just saying, help, 
have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. See, that's the one who went home justified. See, these are common themes in, 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 in our lives today. We far too often base our salvation, our justification, our relationship with God on what we do. And I'm not saying don't do good things. I'm just saying if that's what you're counting on, realize that what God wants are honest people that he can justify and transform. See, these parables are really addressing two main problems that we struggle with. In verse 9, the very first verse, it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. See, the whole point is to address spiritual pride, the problem of self-sufficiency, that somehow we are good enough. We don't see self-sufficiency as a problem. And, and I mean, we do take care of yourself. Don't, the Bible does say don't be dependent upon others. You know, work with your own hands. But, but the ultimate thing is when we come to our relationship with Jesus, if we depend on what we have to bring to the table, we have nothing to bring to the table. We can't depend on our own self-sufficiency. We need help. Now, that can be overwhelming, but it can also be very, very encouraging. Because how many of you have had moments when you feel really good about your spiritual life? Raise your hand if you've ever felt good about your spiritual life. Some of you have. How many of you have had moments when you felt really bad about your spiritual life? Isn't it freeing to realize that it doesn't really matter how good you feel about it or how bad you feel about it because ultimately your relationship with Jesus doesn't depend on your ability to, to do it right. It depends on your willingness to come to him in your need. And this story strikes at the root of pride. It gives us an open door to admit that we mess up, that we need mercy. The one thing I hate about church is we play this I'm doing just fine game. I just wish church could be a place where people were safe enough to say, I've had a crappy week and I mess up all the time and I can't seem to shake this one thing. And nobody else would sit back in judgment, but people would say, oh man, me too. Let's pray. To, let's ask God to help us in this area. Let's try to walk together through this. That's where churches need to move. Instead of people coming in and feeling like I've got to measure up to what this person's like. See, one of the problems that Jesus addresses is our, is our sense of self-sufficiency, and that has to die if we're going to follow him. Jesus said, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That's what he means. You lose your ability to produce for me and realize that I've produced everything you will ever need. And I, well, I'm not going to go there. That's not even in my notes, and I've got to finish today at some time. <laughs> the second issue, and this is one I've, I've been building at all week, is Jesus' story attacks what I call the devaluation of the other. He really surprises the audience. Like, we've read the story. We're not that surprised by the end of the story. They were shocked that the tax collector, the enemy of Israel, would go home justified, and the Pharisee lawkeeper would not. Because they had placed a value on the tax collector, and they said, he's just not worth saving. This is the guy right here. And what they had done is what we do too. We devalue others. We do it um, because of sin in their life or, or maybe because of a lack of financial resources, sometimes because of a lack of intelligence, sometimes because they, they don't have an ability to speak our language, <laughs> sometimes because of their political views. I, 
I'll pick on Americans one last time. Most Republicans don't think Democrats have anything to offer the world, and most Democrats don't think Republicans have anything. To, they devalue each other. Now, in Canada, we don't ever do that, right? Never. <laughs> That's why I live here, right? But I want to tell you something, and this is a, a crucial idea, and we're gonna, we're, we'll kind of wrap up with this, and then how do we apply it? But it's a big, it, it's, it's, it's a fundamental idea. And it, it, it comes to do, has to do with, with the Hebrew word zelem. Zelem. And it, what it means is image or likeness. And it's used in Genesis 127. So God created humanity in his own image. Zelem. Now what a zelem was in Hebrew, it was actually a statue. This is an example of a zelem in Hebrew. That, that would be, they would have called that a zelem. This was from about 900 years before Jesus. And what would happen is, is a king would go into a territory far from his home. He would conquer that territory. And when he conquered it, he would set up his zelem, his image, an image of him, for everybody in that territory to see. And the idea would be, I rule in this place. This is what the king looks like here. Okay? Now, when you put that into the creation story, and God creates humanity in his zelem, in this new creation, you begin to get a picture of what our role as human beings is. We are to reflect the image of the one who rules in this place. And there's something really powerful about that, about being created in the image of God. Not that we're, I mean, we're not gods. We're kind of like, if you see Aladdin, right? Uh, image, we're this small, limited version. I always liked it when the genie said, you know, phenomenal cosmic powers, itty-bitty living space. Well, that's Jesus in this God condensed into this human body. But we are the image of God. We are the picture of what the king is supposed to look like. That's what our job is in creation, is to reflect glory back to the one who actually rules in this place. Now, that's why Satan would attack the image right away. We've got to corrupt this. We've got to destroy this. We've got to hurt it because I don't like all of creation seeing God as ruler. I want to rule. And, and what you then see, once you carry the same idea, in the New Testament, there's a similar word, icon. What's that sound like? Icon, right? Anybody ever seen things like this before? It's a computer icon. These are from a Mac. If you're a PC, I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry that you're from a PC guy, but, but you, you touch the icon to get into something bigger, right? It represents something behind it. And that's, that's where we get the word icon. It's from this Greek word icon image. In the New Testament, about Jesus, it says he is the icon. He's the image of the invisible God. There's a new creation happening in the New Testament. That's why John would say, in the beginning was the word. Jesus is starting things over. God's renewing everything. And in this new creation, he puts this image of himself, Jesus. And then in Romans, Paul says that what God's going to do is to conform us to the likeness or the icon of his son. We're going to be restored to look like Jesus. That's the whole plan of God. To take what was broken in the Garden of Eden and restore it through Jesus in you and me. Now, what does that have to do with anything, you say? <laughs> well, it brings us back to the idea of the devaluation of the other. Every single human being, broken or restored, whatever, is created in the image of God. There's incredible value in that. And we have to be careful. <laughs> we have to be careful when we start judging people based on what we see instead of the fact that God has the potential in them to restore the image of Jesus in their life. Jesus drives it 
home that it's not so much you way you, the way you look as it is the humility of heart to recognize your need and hold that up to God. So how do we live the story today? The first basic thing is we have to realize following Jesus is a heart issue. It really is something in here that has to be changed in us. And second is, is this idea of how you come shapes how you go. Now, what I want to do is I want to end with, with um, oh, I've got this. Let me read you this quote. Teddy Roosevelt, used to, he had this guy, William Beebe, that was a friend of his who was a world-famous naturalist. And William Beebe would come over to the White House and have dinner. And after dinner, they would go out. They'd find a certain spot on the grounds. Uh, it, it, it was near the, and, and then they would look for this star-like light up in one corner. Teddy Roosevelt said it was in the Great Square of Pegasus. And then Roosevelt, once they found that, Roosevelt would say this. That is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It's as large as our Milky Way. It's one of 100 million, ga million galaxies. It consists of 100 billion suns, every single one larger than our sun. Then he would turn to the naturalist and he would say, now, I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. See, Teddy Roosevelt's point was, you are here. <laughs> and that's one of the things we need to remember that, that our position in, in relation to God and all of his creation is tiny yet loved, welcomed. And so I, I, I want to end today with, with uh, communion. You all don't have to come up. At some of, I know this is something you normally do at church or whatever. You don't have to come by any means. But it's a practice that helps us remember some things, two things it does. Here we admit that we need, right? I, I love this because Jesus says, this is my body is broken for you. My blood is poured out for you. Now, please come. And, and in coming, we, like the tax collector, say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I need stuff. It's, I've not got enough to get me to where I need to be. I need to come and receive from you. It's humbling, right? But it's a means to admit that we need. The second is this. Here we stand as equals. When we come to the table, all of us are created in the image of God, distorted, broken, and being restored by Jesus. We're all equals here. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. Look at the plural there. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, this table puts us at the same place. We're all needy. We're all small. We're all broken, but we're invited I love that. Jesus, you know what Jesus says? Every time you do this, you proclaim my death till I come. Do this to remember me and that I've invited you to my table, that what you have is not enough, but what I give you is more than enough. So I'm going I'm to pray, then I'm going to ask Froyo and the music, musicians to come back, and we're going to sing one song. I'm just going to stand up here. It, it's, uh, yeah, I only brought two cups, and I'm not going to make you drink out of them because then everybody's like, oh, man. But there's bread. It's all gluten-free bread. If you just want to dip it in the cup, take your communion. But I, I want us to have the opportunity to come and say, look, I need. I need. And Jesus to say to us, what I have is enough for you. Let's just pray. God, we come to you sinners begging for mercy and thankful that we don't have to stop there that we don't have to go away in our guilt and our shame, but that you, through the cross, the death, the resurrection, you have transformed the image in us. You are, you've promised that you will conform us to the image of your son Jesus, that we can reflect you to the world around us. 
and the process is slow and we mess up, we walk the wrong way and we, we get distracted. But today, we just thank you that you invite us to come to your table. You give us yourself, your body broken, your blood poured out so that we could be made whole. In Jesus' name, amen.